There it is. Um, yeah, why don't you just take it a little slower and just relax and uh, have fun out there. All right. You know, you've been exiled from the country, so just let that flow through. Boom. Dear comrades, when I accepted President Stein's nomination to become commander of the Green Army, I had thought of myself not as a military official, but an international emissary of the Green New Deal. My role was to upend imperialism, moving America's global presence from a colonizer of oppressed people to a colonizer of underserviced gardens. The Green Army was prepared to plant kale, arugula, avocado, and St. John's wort in every U.S.-occupied area from South Korea to Guam. The military apparatus, having outmoded its imperial functions, would then fade away. All the ginkgo biloba in the world could not clear one's mind enough to see how far leader Jill Stein would stray from this noble agenda. Initially, my signature issue as chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff was to produce a fleet of specialized ethanol-powered helicopters. These vehicles were to be used for planting sunflowers from the sky in a manner of extreme efficiency. I did not foresee them being used to pelt dissidents with the rapid-fire sunflower seed guns that each helicopter comes equipped with. I did not envision the totalitarian stripe of the Federal Forced Composting Program. I, for one, have always enjoyed the musical stylings of James Taylor, but I do not appreciate his work being blasted by my green helicopters at homes who do not abide by the Stein government's mandate. The Greens have turned from a party of democracy to one of the bureaucratic class. This parasitic clique claims to work on behalf of the proletariat, but when one looks closer, whose interests are really being served? Who in our society gets first dibs on vitamin B12, on omega-3 fish oil? Is it our hard-working solar panel installers in desperate need of supplements to boost their digestive health and clear away their brain fog? No. It is the bureau chiefs and the milquetoast government of employees who gorge themselves in lavish vitamin soirees that state propaganda outlets like USUncut.com choose not to reveal. A few tablets of 5-HTP and inositol are left over for the masses. That's it. Even in exile, I can see these truths plain. I've seen fire, and I've seen rain, but I always thought I'd see the Green New Deal again. That's that left chest. Been dystopia of the week. Uh, as we said before, we're very excited to have on our guest Mimi Soltizik, who is uh, the Socialist Party USA nominee for President of the United States. Thanks so much, Mimi, for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. Uh, we want to start by asking you the question that everyone who's running for president gets, which at this point is like it's a an obvious question, but it's also a necessary question. It's a good one. It's a good question, too. Why are you running for president? Oh, shit. 
Um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, Angela and I and some of the other folks that uh, work on the campaign, you know, over a year ago, we kind of wondered um, what it might look like if we used, like, the media opportunities that come with running a, a you know campaign of this magnitude to basically tell folks like you know don't look to us you know as candidates to you know provide the solutions uh, but rather you know let's look one uh, you know to one another and work together cooperatively um, uh, to actually build from the bottom up. Uh, we sort of anticipated that with the inclusion of Bernie Sanders into this race that the media opportunities would be somewhat heightened, which th that has happened, you know. And when we talk about these these ideas, you know, uh, explicitly radical slash revolutionary ideas, you know, we figured that, okay, folks would respond um, with either fear, um, you know, having fears because there's still somewhat of a cold war hangover. Um, and if they were interested, um, you know, we would do what we could do to help connect them to movement work in their communities, wherever they might be. So it really is sort of about like helping to build like at the grassroots level um, to kind of gut this shit system from the bottom up. Uh, well, you mentioned uh, Bernie Sanders, and I wanted to ask you, like, as someone who's been involved in socialism for like a long time and before it became a more acceptable uh, term to use, uh, what are some of the limitations that you viewed the the Sanders campaign had and also what are some of the, like the things that are now uh possible or more acceptable because of it well, I think as far as limitations I mean is it you know he, he ran as a democrat you know and of course there that that's a that's a whole other story you know and of course we know you know he's since um you know endorsed Hillary Clinton which isn't really surprising I mean he's a democratic party candidate that's what he's got to do he also has a pretty tremendous history of support for the war. He has said that, you know, he wouldn't rescind the drone program, which we know has killed a lot of, uh, you know, uh, innocent people throughout, you know, throughout the world. It's really terrible stuff. Um, on the positive side, it certainly expanded, you know, the, the, the dialogue about what does this mean? What does socialism mean? You know, I think we all know that it, it, it's generated a lot of interest in, uh, the ideas in the words and, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, that on, on that side of it, that's a really positive thing. Uh, so Mimi, uh, after going through your website here and your platform, uh, it's, it's pretty obvious your party is significantly more progressive than what Bernie was offering the Democrats. Uh, right, right, right. right. Like, uh, you guys were, uh, up for significantly dismantling the military, which is not on the table at all uh right. for the democrats that's a good start uh do you feel so far you guys have been successful in raising awareness for the party are you getting more membership are you seeing more community activism yes i think um you know for us it wasn't a, you know recruiting folks into the the organization that wasn't the primary goal you know that's sort of a a, a nice ancillary benefit you know um, really, I think, uh, the primary goal is to, um, is, is really to help connect folks into movement work in their communities. You know, if it so happens that there's, uh, you know, a socialist party presence in their communities and there are folks within the SP that we can connect them to, that's wonderful, you know, and we, 
we do that and folks do join and all that kind of stuff. But um, that's really not part of, you know, the pitch. Uh, a lot of this work, you know, Angel and I had kind of made a commitment on the front end of this that we would try to make ourselves as accessible to, you know, the people as we possibly can, you know. Um, we're both community organizers. We're not, you know, we're not really candidates in a traditional sense. And this is kind of where, you know, the streets are where we do our work. Um, that's where our expertise lies. And as folks, um, you know, reached out and, and in many cases reached out saying, I'm, I'm curious, but I'm scared. Um, you know, we really try to do what we can to, to humanize all of this. Um, we actually use a lot of our spaces, our social media spaces, um, our video conferencing, that sort of thing, to actually let other folks um, tell their stories, uh, folks who are involved in movement work, to really kind of put a warm and human face on all this to try to help calm, you know, those fears that, that, that folks might have, you know. Um, folks have, they, they have real questions about, you know, like, well, if I get involved with something like this, are the feds going to be looking after me? Is law enforcement going to come after me? Am I going to be put on some sort of watch list? You know, that kind of thing. Um, so I think, like, if we use these spaces to share stories, experiences, ideas, that kind of thing, it, it really goes a long way, I think, to helping folks feel comfortable taking another step forward. Well, something we've been talking about, I know, is, like, we obviously live in New York State, so it's a not mm -hmm. a very going to be very close here. Uh, so, in a lot of ways, if you're you know a, a left of center, if you're a radical, like the purpose of voting, like especially in a safe state, is not necessarily about a candidate. It's more about like mm -hmm. what coalition, what movement are you giving that support to, and and in a very small way, a vote can kind of help that, uh, even if it's for, even if it's for a, a writing candidate. So, how would you? Mm -hmm make the pitch to someone uh, like me who's, you know, weighing Socialist Party USA against some of the other similar mm -hmm. parties like Socialist Equality Party or even like the Greens? How would you uh, differentiate yourselves? Well, you know, I think like when you look um, versus those other, the other parties that you mentioned and the candidates, there's some pretty distinct uh, differences. Um, Ansel and I aren't actually telling folks, you know, we're not saying vote for us. We're not trying to sell you on why you should vote for us. Really what's important to us is uh, it's not so much what happens on election day, rather it's what happens before and what happens after election day, you know. Um, if you vote for another candidate, but through this dialogue and through this relationship, you've taken another step forward toward, you know, like involvement in community work, um, to us, you know, that, that's, that's a win, you know. Um, and this is the kind of thing we see, you know, every day, all the time, um, and it's 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 really been inspiring. It's really been wonderful, you know. So you know, as far as like a pitch to, well, you should vote for us because that's that's not really quite as important to us. You're you're uh, smashing all of our preconceptions here. <laughs> we we don't know how to uh, deal with it. <laughs> but you you would though you would though uh, differentiate yourself from say the Green Party, who right. is running from a a social democratic position. Um, right. And wh why do you think that's kind of a flawed tactic to run like within, uh, try to be included within the electoral system in a more traditional way? Well, you know, I think um, w working for reforms within the capitalist system, um, it's actually um, it, it's, it's it's sort of a means of like kicking the can down the road. And to be honest, like the capitalist system actually needs 
reforms. It needs those roadblocks in order to uh, strategize, strengthen, and grow. Um, so, you know, we really have no interest in promoting sort of a kinder, gentler, cap, uh, you know, racism, sexism, et cetera, um, only to see, you know, like when we look at the New Deal decades ago, and we look to today, you know, income inequality is at an all-time high. Imperialism has been a disaster. Union density is at an all-time low. Uh, climate change is, you know, that that's that's a really dire situation. So, you know, we're not really interested in the reform. Um, uh, the, the message is, you know, the system has to go. It has to go urgently because people have died uh, by the millions, and they'll continue to die if we continue reform-based approaches that the capitalist system can, uh, you know, that it needs in order to, to accumulate and grow. But aren't a, a lot of the, you know, planks on your platform are things like $15 minimum wage, like universal health care. Aren't those kind of reformist ideas? Aren't those things that exist in a market system? I think the platform says uh, $15 uh, indexed to the cost of living. So let's say here in Los Angeles County, uh, let's say here in LA County, you're a single parent with one child. Well, that index to the cost of living, you know, the living wage, the bare minimum that you would actually need uh, in order to meet your, uh, you know, most basic needs, um, is actually just under $26 an hour. So that's what we're talking about there. But you know, at the core of all this is uh, worker ownership and control over production, community control, radical democracy. Um, you know, we're realistic that in the sense that here in the U.S., uh, which is an incrementalist, uh, um, you know, our, our policies are incremental, you know, our progress is incrementalist, that we're likely going to see um, these reforms along the way. But those aren't ends, you know, those are, those are sort of acknowledgments, you know. Ultimately, what we call for is something completely new, you know. If you look at our statement of principles, uh, we, we, we are calling for worker ownership and control over production. Um, we are calling for a socialist economy. And very groovy. Uh, this is this is the kind of stuff we like talking about on Left Chest. Uh, you're, you're spot on so far. I want to take a step back. Uh, Andrews was telling me that Socialist Party USA does not see themselves as a vanguard party because uh, these are left ideas and they're traditionally socialist ideas. Uh, do you right. believe not believe in vanguardism? Where, where, where do you see the next direction happening, presuming there is some community building happening? <laughs> Sure. I mean, the Socialist Party is not a vanguardist party, you know. Um, now, you know, me as a person, like, uh, look, I have admiration for Lenin, uh, for Trotsky, for Mao, etc. Uh, I, I wouldn't consider myself a Leninist or a Maoist, uh, etc. Um, but I think they all bring kind of a contribution to the table, you know, and I think an acknowledgement of like those valuable contributions, it ties into why we don't see ourselves as the sole answer, as having a singular correct line. You know, we're part of the revolutionary process. We make a contribution to that process, but we're not saying this is the sole uh, contribution, you know. If if you don't mind just explaining for our listeners who might not be familiar the the concept of vanguardism as it pertains to socialism and in this kind of it's a kind of a I've spoken 20th, too soon. Well, it's a it's, you know a multifaceted 
term. What? So what are the, some of the historical roots of that term and what uh, people so might not know? Vanguardism, you see the party um, as being the leader of the movement. And you, you know, you may advocate for a one-party state, you know, and that one party is the Vanguard Party. It's that leadership party, you know. Uh, we actually call for a multi-party democracy, you know. I think that's, you know, democracy, uh, both internal and external, is very, you know, it's, it's very important. Um, so, like I said, it's not a disrespect for uh, vanguardism uh, and vanguard parties, but it's a different approach. And the Socialist Party USA, it's interesting because it, I've uh, heard it described as not only being in favor of like multi-party and against but also multi-tendency so you have different uh theoretical and and philosophical orientations within the same uh group have you found though that you have run into conflict with people who are a little bit more doctrinaire who say like it has to be this way and like what what are some of the challenges in dealing with people who are just really dogmatic about their approach Um, it's multi-tendency in the sense that like membership, you know, members bring an incredible array of perspectives into, you know, the organizational dialogue. Um, it's challenging, of course, if you have, you know, say somebody who they want to organize around a singular correct line. Um, and if they have an interest in transforming the social party into an organization that follows a singular correct line, that's really at odds with uh, who we are as an organization. So it, it might not be, you know, the place where they're most comfortable doing the work in. Um, so, for example, like if you have somebody who wants to organize around a Maoist line, you know, my guess is they're probably going to be more comfortable working within a Maoist organization, you know, as opposed to. Uh, you know, trying to, you know, run uphill to transform this organization into a, a, a Maoist organization with that singular correct line. Uh, and is that, is that kind of hindered a lot of socialist movements and parties in the United States? I mean, you mentioned this uh, Cold War hangover earlier, but right. there's still, and that's, uh, some most of that is the perception of U.S., media and you know opinion in the u.s but it also has to do with the you know radicals in a lot of cases declaring solidarity with you know north korea or like just being really tied up in these 20th century um spats what and like how do you move forward from that as well i mean that's a good question you know i mean i think that the 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 perception that the u.s left is divided and sectarian etc you know, that, that's not an inaccurate perception. There are all these lines of demarcation on the basis of, you know, ideological perspectives. I think one thing that we try to do, one thing we um, certainly do with the campaign is, as opposed to focusing on the differences, um, we tend to focus on, uh, you know, the, the commonalities, you know. And we also tend to, you know, focus on the person, the individual, you know, their experiences, who they are, you know, um, and I often, I think, you know, tend to find that, you know, if you, if you approach folks like you give a shit about them, uh, which you do, 
um, it becomes much easier to see that person as, you know, an, an ally, uh, you know, organizing around a common goal. Um, you know, if you've established a friendship, a relationship with them, um, it, it becomes much more difficult to say, I refuse to work with you because we don't share the exact same, uh, you know, ideological perspectives. So uh, I think a lot of this has to do with, you know, treating folks with respect, with humanity, with love and care and that sort of thing. And I think that goes a long way. Well, on that note, could you talk a little bit about uh, your background and also your running mate, Angela Walker's background as uh, organizers and activists? Sure. So I'll see, I'm starting with Angela. Angela's from uh, Sister Milwaukee, Wisconsin uh, in 2014. Uh, she ran for sheriff of Milwaukee County as an open socialist. I think she got almost set you know, almost 70,000 votes. She was really incredible, you know. She's a community organizer. She does work with Black Lives Matter, et cetera. Uh, I have said this before, but to me, uh, Angela looks like what revolution is to me, you know. Um, she's got so much integrity, uh, so much passion, um, and, and so much compassion. Uh, she's, I don't know. I just think the world of her. Um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, I'm, I grew up like a, you know, kind of a skateboarding punk rock kid, uh, got in a lot of trouble, uh, as a teenager. Then through my early thirties, I played in a, in a band. Um, and by my early thirties, I think a whole bunch of kind of reached a point like with substance abuse and, uh, just kind of meandering where I kind of hit like a sort of a, I don't know, a crisis point, but I guess sort of like a rock bottom and, Basically, I had, you know, choices to make. Like, do I continue in the direction that I was headed and who knows where the hell that's going to go? Or do I try to figure out what the hell am I doing here, you know? Put one foot in front of the other, start trying to learn how to learn again, um, start listening, you know? Prior to that, I mean, I, I really didn't care about much of anything. Um, I didn't care about myself. And it was, you know, pretty uh, self-destructive and destructive to everything around me. Um and, uh, you know, I, I thought like, shit, it, it's time to try to connect, you know, to try to feel a sense of community and, um, uh, and in doing so, you know, and, and listening really started to hear from folks here in my community in Los Angeles, what their experiences were like. And, you know, of course the suffering is tremendous. Um, and as I'm hearing this, I'm also learning, you know, um, and learning that there is there is an identifiable cause of the oppression, the exploitation, the suffering, and that's capitalism, you know. And there's also an identifiable solution in socialism. Um, so after doing some, like, starting to get my feet wet with some, you know, community organizing work, I, I began to wonder, like, where does somebody like me go? Where Where can I plug into to really sort of attack you know, the problem. Um, and I also felt like I had a lot of, uh, catch up to do because I had spent so much of my time, you know, focused on self-destruction. Um, and you know, shit, I'm in my thirties, like life moves by pretty quick. So I did some asking around, talked to a lot of folks, did my research and, and found that, uh, you know, the, the, the socialist party was uh, a spot for me. Um, you know, one, because it, it's sort of, it's anti-authoritarian it's not centralist in that directives come from the top and, you know, they must be followed on the way down. I mean, I'm still kind of, uh, you know, 
still sort of a punk rock guy and I still bristle at, um, you know, authority and uh, directives and all that sort of stuff. So it just felt like a really good fit for me. Well, yeah, man. Uh, punk rock, most uh, most uh, accurate to leftism, we say, broadcasting from a shipping container in Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, I was thinking, <laughs> and along with punk rock, too, of how many, like... Um, kids in your situation are are you know self-destructive as you were saying sure and right. how you know because there are a lot of that has to do with their economic conditions and how right. that of the answer to that there are some of them who you know sober up and stuff um right. but then they become uh you know very efficient business people or and that kind of becomes their purpose or you know sure. they get really grappled into religion and stuff and Right. Uh, what do you think the potential is now um, to build like a revolutionary movement that reaches not just, you know, people who are in college reading Marx or whatever, but kids on the street who are, you know, dealing drugs and uh, sure. engaging in self-destructive stuff? Because it seems like that used there used to be a lot more answers for those kids. Um <sighs> from in, in politics and and it doesn't seem to be the case anymore but is that starting to change do you see hope for that i do i mean you know like to be honest with you like as 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 a, a young person like as like you know the punk rock skateboarding kid like like i was listening to shit like minor threat fugazi you know stuff that had a pretty like explicit uh you know political message but just wasn't resonating with, you know resonating with me i mean i just wanted to get screwed up and uh um, riding my skateboard and getting into trouble and shit like that. Um, and you know, it wasn't until later, till more recently, within the last decade, that um, I, 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 these ideas started to resonate with me. And I think why I feel some optimism right now is that I think with young folks who are so heavily connected to, you know, through social media, um, they grew up with the internet, so they have such quick, easy access to information, and they can also share information so quickly, you know. Um, and I think as organizers, using social media as an organizing tool, you know, you have the opportunity to reach folks very quickly, um, to have a dialogue, um, you know, anywhere in the world. You can have a, a real-time dialogue about these ideas. And, um, you know, to me, that's very promising. Um I, I actually, look, I see online all the time millennials getting trashed by, you know, uh, baby boomers, et cetera. And the truth of the matter is, you know, I think the reasons why they're being trashed, and one of them is, you know, I think, uh, you know, socialism and radical ideas, um, they're resonating with younger people, you know. So it's sort of a threat to more reactionary elements who have a, you know, they've held the floor for so long. And now younger folks are saying, you know, screw that shit. Like, you, you've destroyed so much, you know. And these ideas now, which are challenging these dominant narratives, um, these ideas are gaining currency. And I, I think when we look to young folks, uh, for me personally, I've seen them as being um, uh, leaders of, of this movement. Um, I think when we look at, like, Black Lives Matter, Standing Rock, et cetera, you know, uh, folks can tap into, you know, news from those movements. Um, they can express solidarity. You know, they can see in real time through, you know, video footage, what's going on here, you know? And, 
yeah, I, I think that all you know contributes to sort of the swiftening of the revolutionary pace in this country. Oh hell yeah! Uh, I I don't know. I I feel like uh, a a big reawakening for our generation was a financial crisis at the end of two thousands, and then the, right. the emergence of Occupy. You see the success mm-hmm. with that, but. Uh, 9-11 yeah and 9-11 a lot of big exciting right. events we were going over one of the last few weeks just some uh i think it was tweets or tumblers or something from these kids born in like 1998 or 99 and they're just saying radical shit now like they had even less of the uh old status quo doctrine uh impressed on them before these big events happened um what do you think we could do to maybe organize uh better or more completely and if we face some kind of uh crisis again and we get some more uh activism on the sides of occupy that we could use to move forward right because another financial crisis you know is almost i don't want to say it's inevitable but right right well i think you know one thing that we can do is um you know we're sort of indoctrinated to looking toward candidates as uh you know being sort of the saviors of the problem uh and the fact is they, they couldn't you know uh, if, if if i you know in some incredibly hypothetical scenario where you know we won this race i couldn't do it you know um it's a system that gives birth to the these the problems you know um so i think you know the, the, the first thing we can do is be very sober in our assessment of what it is that we're facing um what solutions might look like, um, and then, and, and I know this is going to sound, this might sound boring, um, but is that we actually engage in like strategic planning to attack those systems, you know, and that's going to require, and it does require uh, a lot of coordination, a lot of communication. Um, it requires a very inclusive approach because you need to draw folks in to build capacity to actually carry out, you know, these campaigns. Um, we use uh, and can use technology to connect folks over, over, you know, broader areas, over much wider areas, and to share information and strategies and that sort of thing and coordinate efforts. Um, but this extends far beyond sort of the revolutionary rhetoric. You know, it's easy to say, like, our oh, revolution now. Um, well, the fact is, to actually make that sort of progress, that, that, that is a lot of work. And like I said, it, it's like when you look at what the environment is like and you're prepared to acknowledge what it is we're facing, what the challenges are, uh, while that might be, like I said, it's, it's sobering, it can seem incredibly, the challenge can seem incredibly profound i mean that's that's even an understatement you know it can seem daunting i think for a lot of folks and understandably so it it's depressing you know um but if we're going to make progress we have to engage in that hard work of you know the strategic planning um and then planning that is actually prepared to take action um and i think there are also some realizations and uh, again uh, sort of stark realizations about what action might look like, what the consequences of action might look like. Um, and, you know, and I think for so many of us, the reality is this a transition, a revolutionary transition, it, it's, it's going to be uncomfortable, you know. Um, if, if we have any intention of uh, saving, you know, the planet, um, I think a lot of our conveniences and privileges, um, you know, they're going to take a hit. 
Um, we could have a revolution tomorrow where the workers own and control production. But if we're still, uh, you know, if it's still a productivist economy, um, that's not going to slow down the pace of climate change, you know. The, the, you know, the, uh, the effects of transporting goods and services on the climate, extraction, all this sort of thing, we, we just can't have it. I mean, the science tells us, uh, you know, it's incontrovertible. We, we can't have it. The planet's carrying capacity isn't as such that we can have that. And, you know, what, what's that going to mean for us? Well, you know, as people, I think... Um, that does mean that it's almost a, it's a shift in culture. It's a shift in how we approach day-to-day life, you know? Um, and I understand, like, that's a really profound realization, you know? Um, it's it's going to be uncomfortable. Well, beyond... But let me say this really quick. Yeah, yeah. The flip side of that is it's going to be uncomfortable, for you know, however, the way it's been... For so many of the world's oppressed communities, they're not even alive to feel that, you know, discomfort. They're dead, you know. Um, And without those sacrifices from those who have had privilege and comfort, you know, the oppressed communities will continue to die and the planet will continue uh, to wither away. Plus, less uncomfortable than just letting the world burn. Yeah. So. Right, right. Right, it's not a... It's like actually, even though it's a sauna, not a house on fire. It's like ooh, <laughs> not a greenhouse fire. Um, but so, what is to be said then of b- beyond planning, actually forming uh, alternative, not necessarily trying to overthrow the system, just forming, um, you know, organizations that are, you know, the, the the Black Panthers used to have a breakfast program, just getting involved in communities mm-hmm. and already forming forms of mutual aid Absolutely. that can that are non-capitalist and are able to sustain themselves after the the pending climate catastrophe sure well i you know i think because the challenge is so daunting you know i think we actually have to have every tool available at our disposable to challenge and ultimately overthrow the system so if you take something like if you take the, the free breakfast program of the black panther party you know that's that's one contribution you know if you look at moves moves to uh for abolition of the police that's another contribution you know i think you have to have every weapon in the arsenal available as you move forward and as i mentioned before that uh the importance of building capacity so you can actually engage all these products i'm sorry uh projects um, and make progress. That capacity building is essential. How do you build capacity? As I mentioned before, you know, approaching folks with love and humanity and care, um, as opposed to, I think, so many folks uh, who aren't involved in leftist politics, when they think of the left, they think of sort of the academic debate. I think for a lot of folks, it can be intimidating. They feel a sense of like uh, condescension from the left, et cetera. And I think, you know, we, we can all do a lot to kind of uh, change that perception, you know, um, and start treating folks rather as like an audience, but more like partners, you know, like, look, we're going to do this together, you know? Right. And, the, and would you say that, that uh, the neoliberal class has already started to take that, uh, you, you know, there's this uh, esoteric view you were talking about of you know, radicals and stuff. But is that starting to, to go more towards uh, liberals with, you know, the advent of like the Ezra Kleins of the world who are writing this like policy wonk stuff from um, champagne socialists to just champagne, uh, just champagne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Like, sure. isn't that? Uh, it's hard to these be ideas... more condescending than those people. Right, right. <laughs> like they're they're starting to get more condescending, um, and now right. the the question is like, can radicals give? We can we you know give up our ego a little bit and uh, feel like be allowed to call be called stupid and crazy and not just pretentious for a while. You know? Well, you know, one thing, like I said, when we do sort of, a, you, when you do your strategic planning, you do an environmental scan, right? And you look at what the environment is, and you have to be very honest about what that environment looks like. You mentioned champagne socialists, et cetera. You know, they're part of that. Um, there's a tool called a, a SWOT analysis, which is like strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. And you include all these things in that analysis, so you get a very... Um, sort of clear picture of what the organizing environment looks like. So if you take the champagne socialists, right, and you might, uh, you might, you can put them into your weaknesses column, you can put them into your threats column, you know, and when you do that, this becomes part of the organizing strategy. You include that and in how you address that, you know, um, and like I said, this, this, this stuff might kind of sound like sort of boring and wonky and all that kind of thing, but, uh, they are part of the environment, you know, it's something that we've got to face when we move forward, you know, uh, you know, folks who are sort of into like lifestyle politics, right. Um, you know, maybe they shop at whole foods or whatever. And what oppressed communities you're hearing from them are, you know, well, you need to purchase ethically and this sort of stuff and you need to buy organic, you know, well, for so many folks, like, are you gotta be shitting me? Like, how the hell can I afford to do this sort of thing? You know? Um, so I think what we as radicals can do is, you know, um, have those discussions with the people about what, like, lifestyle politics, what does that mean, you know? How do we counter that effectively, you know? Um, it, it all sort of goes into the pot, you know, of, of how we approach the future. Right. And that's, uh, yeah, I mean, I for, I, for one, would rather way rather be called, like, stupid than, like, smug. Because that's because if you're crazy and your ideas are people view you as crazy at first, but your ideas have, you know, some cachet, people are catching on to it. That's a sign of success. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're smug and pretentious, you're not uh, succeeding. You know, my guess would be uh, if for me personally, like what something like if I'm going to see red, uh, that sort of smug, condescending bullshit, uh, that's going to do it, you know. I, yeah. I, I I have very little patience for that sort of shit. For sure. It's kind of used as a weapon, mostly. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing is uh, if you're asking for entire global economic change, you're probably going to get called both. Right. And Well, how often do you uh, get, you know, you begin an interview or you're talking to somebody just like trying to uh -huh. communicate your ideas like, uh, well, you have tattoos. So, it, it, you know, it's a funny thing. It's like very little. Um, really? I, I, yeah, what, that was a consideration. Like, you know, um, look, you make a choice at the front end of this. Am I going to go? Look, I, I'm not, you know, the kind of person who uh, wears a suit, much less can afford a suit to mm -hmm. wear. Um, you know, uh, am, am I going to do this as we go through this campaign, or am I, am I just going to be who I am and just say, like, look, check it out? This is what I got. This is who I am. I'm not going to pander. I'm not going to, you know, apologize for the fact that I, I have tattoos. You know, they reflect who I am. And by and large, overwhelmingly, you know, the response from the folks has been like, 
right on, you know? Um, yeah. that's, that's like, you know, like that's refreshing or like we've been waiting for so long to see that sort of thing. You know, both Angela and I have a bunch of tattoos and you know, we're, we're not trying to hide them as we do our stuff. Yes. Every now and again, um, we do hear from folks, uh, things like, well, you're not taking it seriously. You need to put a suit on and you need to wear, <laughs> you know, you know, uh, the proper clothes if you want to be taken seriously. Like, right. you know what? Like, we've been down this road forever. And, there, you know, yeah. And, and if only the protesters would wear suits, <laughs> and then we would know. <laughs> uh-huh. right. They mean business. Right. I also love the irony right. of telling you that you need to take things seriously and wear a suit after. Like these people have all watched Donald Trump give just any speech, you yeah. know? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, that guy's wearing a suit. I think you know, it was, like uh... good stuff there. George <laughs> W. Bush wore a suit. Barack Obama wears a suit. Bill Clinton wore a suit. These these people are freaking terrible, you know? Yeah. Uh, what what does the suit mean? Like, geez, should I be taking those folks seriously? You know, I have more faith in my neighbors. You know what I mean? Right. Um, you know, they're not wearing suits when I talk to them out in the parking lot or but you know, they meet them be. on the street. <laughs> Give me a break, <laughs> you know. Yeah. The other thing, too, is if you're posing some kind of uh, uh, societal threat and people are shooting sound cannons at you, you might shit your suit. And then yeah. dry cleaning's expensive. There's a lot of risks. Oh, did you say I might shit in the suit? Like, like shit my pants? Yeah, like yeah, the yeah, brown yeah, note. Yeah, yeah. The brown note, yeah. That's why you got to wear a brown <laughs> suit. A suit that's already shit colored. A chocolate suit. <laughs> I mean, I, I haven't shit in my pants in a long time. So, um, Care to you know, expound on that? <laughs> I think I'm, I think we I'm got him on the record. Okay, we tried to get him with the the, the, the pants shitting scandal, and uh, I, he I denies it. This, like, I, like I think around 26, I found out that like you know my liver was failing, and from that time on, like till now. It's like, when I got to go, I got to go, you know? Oh, boy. So I just got to kind of make sure that I'm close to the bathroom. I just thought I'd share that one with you. That's, That's the truth. Is that where you're talking to us from right now? The toilet? Is that, is that where what? Are, you in, are you in the bathroom, bathroom right now? It's no, I'm actually smoking a cigarette outside. Oh, okay. Very That's a great... Cool. I, I love... Yeah, I don't smoke cigarettes, but I love having a conversation when, a, when smoking's happening. I love being um, outside. Yes. Uh... <laughs> uh <laughs> Take, no smoking in the house. <laughs> taking a, a step back for a moment, what do you view as some of the uh, difference? I mean, I don't want to get in, up into the whole thing about like what are the differences between Trump and Clinton, yada yada. Um, but after the election, as a, an organizer and a revolutionary, what are some of the different? What do you have to be prepared for based on if it's uh, Trump or Clinton? Well, I, I mean, I, I think one thing, and this is certainly not my idea, it's not novel, but when you have a Democrat in the office, look at what that might do to an anti-war movement, you know? Um, you see it much more openly and, and, you know, on a much grander scale if you have a Republican in office, you know? Um, you know, I don't know that anybody now is under any illusion that, you know, Hillary Clinton is a dove and that she's, you know, uh, soft with regards to defense, the military, et cetera. I mean, she's, she's, she's a hawk, you know? Um, she's imperialist as fuck. Um, so, I mean, that, that's something to consider. And, and there have been a lot of discussions, uh, you know, about how we're going to approach this with, you know, in all likelihood, she's going to win. Um, and what that's going to do or, you know, what, it, what it does to an anti-war movement, you know? Um, so, like I said, from the strategic planning side, and you look at the environment, that's a real consideration, you know? 
Um, look, look, look at the, you know, Obama's military record. Look at his record with the drone, you know, the drone program, et cetera. The anti-war movement in the U.S. is is pretty small, you know. Um, yet, in effect, I mean, he's terrible, you know. Uh, his foreign policy is terrible. Um, so, I mean, I think those are considerations. Now, if Donald Trump's in office, I mean, you know, after the fact, shit, I, it, that's a hard thing to even consider. Um, but I, I, I would expect that if Trump was in office, we would probably see a much greater, you know, response, uh, you know, from progressives and from the left uh, to, you know, to war, to, to the military, you know. So I actually think right now, and I, like I said, these discussions have been ongoing, is how are we going to deal with that reality that having a Democrat in office um, you know, that, that, that has an effect on the mobilization of the people um, against war. You heard it here, folks. Donald Trump in office. Good for community building. <laughs> that is not that is that is what the trolls will say. Um, but the I guess it seems, though, like how how likely do you think if, you know, Trump is in office that it will resemble what happened in the 2000s, where it's just this big, really big anti-Bush tent, but the most prominent right. members of it got to guide it in this totally reactionary, just like, let's do a better job of what Bush wants to do, you know? like They steal our tent. Right, right. We, uh, we just don't even have a tent anymore. Yeah, Small yeah. Small or big. Just, yeah, just pointing out the contradictions of, you know, a conservative leader with their conservatism and trying to make a p- more... Because pu- that's kind of what happened in the 2000s, right, with like John Kerry and stuff. Uh, there's that and then under a Democrat do you think there's kind of a sharpening of the differences between members of the the left you know the you really weed out who's in it for the uh, the actual revolution or the actual justice versus just kind of a a, as you said a lifestyle politics yeah I mean I think this really sort of sharpens the focus on uh, systems as opposed to the individuals, you know, like I said, we've been back and forth through this for so long, you know, uh, you've got a conservative in office, uh, well, the Democrat appears as sort of a gentler, uh, at least rhetorically, you know, alternative to the conservative, uh, you know, but in practice, of course, they're, they're equally as hawkish. Um, and I think that for us, that responsibility to be able to deliver a message that resonates, you know, uh, with the people that really highlights how important that focus is on the systems, uh, as opposed to the individual candidates, the individual elected officials, um, that becomes so important, you know, and I think we have a responsibility, um, but these ideas are not necessarily simple. I mean, I think once you sort of immerse yourself in, you know, the economics and, and all that sort of stuff, it, it makes sense. And it, you get to a point where like, well, geez, this seems like common sense. Um, but, you know, it, this stuff takes time to learn. And uh, um, I think that we can do a much better job of presenting um, information and, and ideas in a way that, uh, that resonates with the people. Um, and that involves, you know, one thing I think with the Black Panther Party, like you look at um, Emory Douglas, like the artist, you know, with the, the Black Panther Party artist, he did a tremendous job of using art as a means of, you know, conveying a message and an idea, you know. And I think we have that ability now with, you know, you see so many folks sharing memes, graphic design, that sort of thing. Um, 
can we do the same sort of thing? Can we present um, an idea that uh, compels folks to look at the systemic problems, you know? Um, and, and I do think it's a tremendous responsibility that the U.S. left has, you know? This doesn't mean, you know, if we go to a rally right now, seeing a bunch of groups selling papers, you know, uh, you know, not, not not that kind of stuff, you know, um, but really making an effort to, to to resonate with folks. So you've been uh, touring for the, for this run, right? You've been uh, traveling around. Yeah, yeah, we, we, yeah. I mean. We certainly can't travel to the extent that, like the other, you know, the four candidates, uh, Stein Johnson, uh, you know, Clinton and Trump can. We we just don't have that kind of treasury. What we have to do is, you know, we try to reach as many places as we can in person. uh, And we have had a lot of in-person visits. But what we also do is, you know, an acknowledgement that we can't reach everybody in person. We use technology, we use video conferencing that like host town halls where folks, regardless of where they are throughout the country, that they can participate in like a community discussion. It's just, um, you know, through webcam or through phone, you know, and, and in doing so, we can reach so many, you know, so many folks that we just can't in person because we can't afford the travel expenses. Uh, did you have something? I no, I just ahead. wanted to ask, like, uh, so you've been, I maybe not to the extent as maybe Hillary Clinton or uh, Gary Johnson or something, but uh, have in your traveling, have you seen any like uh, incredible good reasons for optimism? Any exciting stuff out there people should know about? Anything cool going on? Always, always see reasons for optimism. I mean, shit. Like uh, last month, I think. Um we had gone to the Midwest, and uh, I think one of our first stops was, um, uh, it was in this town maybe uh, 40 miles south of Springfield, Illinois, this town called Pena, Illinois. I think it's a tremendously conservative town, but right in the middle of the town is an anarchist collective, you know? And uh, it's this safe space for young people throughout the community to come and to, you know, share anarchist ideas and, uh, you know, have discussions. They have, like, uh, uh, like bands and hip-hop artists, punk rock artists that play there. And it's just like, wow, you drive into this town and it, it looks like, well, shit, is anybody here not voting for Trump? But then right there on the main street is... Um, I think it's uh, uh, Rose City Underground, it's called. I think it's The Refuge, you know? And you walk in and, like, everybody there is... Uh, talk about inspiring. Like, you know, the staff there, uh, the young folks that are all, you know, that are there, because that's their space. Holy shit, you know, it just kicks, you, it just kicks your ass, you know? Um, and they're right in the midst of, like, this hyper-conservative environment, you know? Um that, that just floored me. Uh, we we had to do a panel up in Flint, you know, and met some students up in Flint. And uh, damn, they're spot on, you know, with their analysis and like their understanding of what's happening there, you know. So it's like everywhere you go, you run into this sort of thing. Shit, two weeks ago, um, I had to go down to Orange County, which is a very conservative county. It's just south of Los Angeles, um, and. You know, we were invited to come down to speak to some students at the campaign and about socialism and stuff. So I'm thinking, like, well, this would be cool. We'll go down, and maybe there'll be, like, 10 or 15 students, 
you know, maybe they have a club or something like that. But I got down there. It was at uh, Mission Viejo High School and uh, walked into the the doors of an auditorium. And there's over 100 students there. And, like, shit, like, that, that, they're into it, you know. And uh, my, my bud and I you know, went down there. We're just like, what in the hell was that all about, you know? Like, this was so freaking cool. When I was going up, like, in my high school, if a socialist, a radical, had come to speak to the school, I don't know what would have happened, you know? Um, so every day you see these signs, like, I don't know, things are changing. Yeah. Like I would say it's more than reason for optimism. It's almost this feeling like, well, we're going to win. You know, I can't say exactly when we're going to win, but it's going to happen. And it's largely because of, you know, young folks. Yeah. We're coming up in high schools right now. (laughs) Somebody has got to (laughs) be. Like, I'm not on top of this, but somebody's doing dialectical vines or something. <laughs> They're out there, and we need them on the show. I have uh, no idea who it is. <laughs> there's going to be an app for dialectics, I tell you. Um, we need an app! <laughs> what? Uh, so, so Did you say an app for dialectics? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Maybe <on>. two apps. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I uh, was wondering before uh, I was going to ask you this earlier. The Socialist Party USA. When did it mm-hmm. become USA? Because before that, it was just Socialist Party, right? It was the uh, Eugene Debs. Yeah. So, like in 1972, there was a split in the Socialist Party of America, and you know, the Socialist Party of America was the party of you know Eugene Debs, Helen Keller, uh, A. Philip Randolph, on and on and on. Shit, Henry Miller may have been a member at one time. You know. Um, but in 1972, there was a split. Uh, there were two like factions. One faction, um, which was organized around a guy named Michael Harrington, um, they decided that it made more strategic sense to work within the Democratic Party. Um, that faction became what's now known as the DSA or the Democratic Socialists of America. That's where I think you know Bernie Sanders comes from, Cornell West that sort of thing. The other faction was called the Debs Caucus after Eugene Debs. And that faction, uh, you know, wanted to maintain complete independence from the capitalist parties and was also staunchly opposed to the Vietnam War um, as opposed to that other faction. That faction, the Debs Caucus, that became the Socialist Party USA. So it has its roots in the Socialist Party of America, but the party did split in 1972. You know, we went to the left the other went to the right. That seems like a terrible socialist faction supporting the Vietnam War. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Just not they're like new or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm, that seems to happen, yeah. though. You got Hitchens uh, for Iraq. You know, every now and again, you'll get like a Marxist who likes some form of imperialism. An Anakin Skywalker type thing. Yeah. They flip sides. Well, you know, I, I think that that right faction you know, had more of a, like, a, maybe more of an anti-communist position. Right, because you know? it's the 70s. Yeah. Right. Remember, Anders? Remember the 70s? I remember <laughs> hearing about it. Uh, but it the... Yeah, I've so seen, you remember hearing about it? I've seen Star... Yeah, I've seen Star Wars several times. It's pretty much Star Wars. Right. That's what it was right like on. back then. Uh, is it... Do you it, a pair of roller skates? <laughs> I did for a while, but uh, got made fun of pretty badly, oh, so I had to ditch him. That's sad. Uh, the uh, I was browsing the website a little bit, and am I to believe that the 
animal for the Socialist Party USA rather than donkey, elephant, etc., is a cat. Is that what I picked up? Yeah, it's, we talk about this a lot, how how it is that, like, uh, folks on the left tend to, you know, tend to all be all about cats. Of course, that's not everybody, but, uh, you know, lefties love their cats. You know, I love mine, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I have a tattoo on my forearm, like... It's uh, a cat too. Yeah, there definitely seems to be a lot of love for Ooh. cats on the left. That's very strange. I did not put this together. I have three cats. Uh, well, <laughs> I have no business having three cats. Well, with the with the time we have left, <laughs> what do you think it is about feline nature uh-huh. or uh, cat ownership that translates so well to socialism? We know you've been asked this a lot, but um, well, you know, I, I guess like. To me, uh, you know, cats are sort of saying, like, you know, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me, you know? Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, yet they're like these tremendous companions. I mean, you know, they're really independent, um, and uh, yeah, I almost see them as peers as opposed to, like, you know, that's something that I own, and I'm telling them what to do. You know, it's, we share spaces with them, you know? It's, it's a, <laughs> you know, it's... It's a community, like, you know, the the bed, you know, it's as much the cat's as it is mine, you know? Wow. It's a cohabitation uh, practice. Yep. It's, yeah. Uh, you have to learn yeah, to respect sure. borders. And, Although, uh, I'll tell you this, like, what do and the cats do, you know, like, you know, they'll puke on the carpet, like, yeah, I don't puke, like, next to their... You know, their food dish and next to the cat box. That's not so good, um, yeah. I don't know that the, the, the exchange is necessarily fair. Yeah, they don't hold up their end of the bargain, I guess would be <laughs> the criticism. <laughs> I actually, this is, yeah. this is kind of a related anecdote. I once lived in an apartment where we did not sign the pet deposit. And so we had oh. a cat and it was not le- technically legal. Ooh. Yeah. And oh. so, so we hid the cat when the landlord came over to visit but he noticed a litter box and I using my uh, grade A acting chops was able to convince the landlord that the litter box was for my own purposes what that it was not for (laughs) a cat (laughs) that's mine (laughs) this is like what the landlord say he he just I told him it was he just assumed it was some like new age tipster thing I think this was in Brooklyn this is in Brooklyn yeah <laughs> yeah okay that's what the kids are doing these days they take a sh- they shit in the cat box <laughs> that's right there's no rule in the book that says Anders can't poop in a box right yeah, Why, right toilets you know all right um <laughs> so this is actually our last show before okay. Tuesday before the election and um. I'm really glad that we got to talk to a presidential candidate and uh, pretty I th- solid, pretty yeah. solid. <laughs> yeah. So I'm really glad we had this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. All right. Mimi Soltizic, right. everybody vote on Tuesday. Vote, vote socialist. Take care. <laughs> All right. Take care. <laughs>